All right, well, thank you for rejoining us. I will begin again with a brief review of the issues and then introduce the speakers for the second panel. Now, the problem of state and local pension funding has been known for uh, several years now. Under the GASB guidelines, that's the Government Accounting Standards Board's guideline, which is an independent nonprofit organization, it's not a federal government uh, agency or anything. The funding ratio was calculated for all of these state and local pension plans. The funding ratio calculation used something called actuarial assets, which are constructed by averaging market valuations of the asset side of the pension funds books over several past years. So asset market uh, declines, especially the decline in the last recession, 2008 and 2009, had only a small immediate impact on the actuarial asset valuation. Over the years, however, the as asset values have recovered gradually, actuarial assets and plan funding ratios have continued to decline as smoothing procedures excluded the high asset value years from before the recession. Lower funding ratios that have continued to uh, remain uh, despite the market recovery, therefore, implied higher required contributions by uh, state and local authorities, which is causing all the distress um, uh, in uh, state budget policy ma making. Going forward, this funding ratio, the funded ratio will gradually improve as asset prices increase and the recession period is phased out of asset valuations. However, that was before the GASB announced new uh, accounting and uh, uh, funding status uh, measurement uh, standards. Now the GSB requires market value, current market valuation itself to be used uh, in determining the funding ratio, which means funded ratios actually have declined now, uh, slightly compared to what they were in the, in, under the previous regime. The GSB has also introduced a very complicated standard on discounting liabilities or measuring uh, the uh, present value of uh, the uh, state and local pension plans obligations to pay in the future. The measurement standard that has been announced now, however, has, again, serious shortcomings, and it will continue the distortions that were uh, uh, present in the previous standard in terms of the incentives of uh, plan managers to manage the asset portfolio uh, take risk, and so on. Um, under the new funding standard, the uh, uh, funded ratio across all state and local, or at least the major state and local uh, pension plans, appears to be around 70%, or just slightly higher than 70%. But under the more appropriate riskless or near-riskless discount rate assumptions that economists believe is the right way of doing it, the funded ratio is about 50% right now. Many researchers project that this funding ratio uh, will improve over time, but I think that can happen only if economic outcomes are much better than the assumptions that underlie these projections of increasing uh, funding ratios in the future. Now, as was mentioned in the earlier panel, state and local pension authorities across the nation have been changing plan features. They've been introducing adjustments to the cost of living uh, adjustments. Uh, increasing contributions by new employees, or in many cases, all employees as well. 
reducing benefits for new hires and switching to hybrid plans. But it's often very difficult to distinguish between what is a real reform versus what is just window dressing for uh, short-term results. So which states are introducing the correct types of reforms and which are headed in the wrong direction is a question that many analysts find difficult to figure out at first glance. So we need uh, a deeper analysis of that. Uh, what are the available choices? What are the do's and don'ts for pension reform for states and localities, especially those with the more serious spending, uh, funding shortfalls? Uh, so to discuss all of these, we have two very uh, serious analysts. Eileen Norcross is a senior research fellow at the George uh, Mason Marquesas Center. Her work focuses on state and local pension uh, and public finance issues, how economic institutions support or hamper economic resiliency and civil society. She also specializes uh, in fiscal federalism and institutions, pensions, public administration, and economic development. Norcross has testified before Congress on state and local pension fund underfunding, <laughs> municipal bankruptcy, and the use of technology to monitor stimulus funding. She has also testified on the fiscal and budgetary policies before several state legislatures. Uh, previously, she was uh, Warren T. Brooks Journalism Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and a consultant at KPMG's Transfer Pricing Division, and a research analyst with Thompson Financial Securities Data. Her graduate degrees are in economics from, uh, and American history are from Rutgers University. She will be followed by Richard Dreyfus, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute Center for State and Local Leadership and a regular contributor to publicsectorinc.org. Uh, Mr. Dreyfus is an actuary and business consultant. He was director of compensation and benefits at the Hershey Company. He was founder, member, and chair in 2001-2002 in of the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council, which is responsible for developing cost containment strategies and improving healthcare service quality. Rick has testified before Congress and before the Pennsylvania General Assembly on pensions and healthcare issues and on strategies to effectively manage long-term employee benefit costs. He holds a BA in mathematics and economics from Connecticut College and an MA in actuarial science from Northeastern University. So I invite Eileen to take the podium. Thank you. Um, so I have some notes on my slides, so I'm going to be going in between my notes and the actual slides. But I'd like to begin with um, the Tax Foundation's recent map. This is on a market valuation basis, which is that e economic basis that um, economists are recommending pensions be valued at, and that's the, the risk-free or default-free um, discount rate. And as you see, most plans are under 50% funded. Um, and of course, the worst, you've heard Illinois um, take, takes the prize there. They're about 24% funded. That's on a market valuation basis. On an actuarial basis, it's, it's um, higher. Um, so Illinois, Connecticut, two states that are in pretty poor shape. And then when you start considering another factor, something I've been looking at recently is uh, states with also municipal problems. Um, Illinois, of course, has a very large unfunded liability, and this is on a market valuation basis. Um, I calculated they were about $173 billion um, underfunded um, using that risk-free rate. Chicago has a pension crisis of about $44.8 billion. Those are Joshua Rao and Robert Novi Marx's figures. And then Cook County um, has got about 
$1.2 billion on a market basis. So when you combine all that together, um, Illinois taxpayers are looking at a very serious burden. Los Angeles is getting some more attention these days also. They're um, on a market valuation basis, about $26 billion underfunded. That's about $18,000 per household. Detroit, of course, is in the news. They calculated they were doing pretty well. I went back and looked at their reports. They said, you know, we're at $634 million um, on an actuarial basis. On, I think their report was maybe two years ago, um, or their most recent report. And I calculated it was closer to about $9.4 billion on a market basis. Now add that to Detroit's debts that, that of course, are in the news and why they're in bankruptcy. Um, and then, of course, we have other states that have this, this problem of not only do they have a state problem, but a municipal, independent municipal plans that are experiencing stress, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and some of their major cities in particular. Um, so this becomes a, a state-local problem uh, very acutely in some places. Um, and I think it's very important to note uh, the structural versus the superficial approach. And I, I really liked um, Richard Dreyfuss's five-point plan that he lays out in the Manhattan Institute report um, he put together recently. And I, I think the merits of that um, is that it, it begins with the concept of breaking this link between politics and pensions. And I think that is the main reason these defined benefit plans have imploded. Um, I, I'm a big fan of this book, Pension Finance, by Barton Waring, and I always mention it, but he, I, I think he uses the expression in that book, you know, defined benefit plans shouldn't be a roller coaster ride, and yet that's what they've been. And there's a reason for that, and it is this um, politicization, perhaps, of, of how these plans have been managed, but also the accounting assumptions. And I don't always think it's intentional, um, but a lot of these assumptions have, have come to, home to roost now. Um, another, another feature in, in the plan or it's, it's mentioned, is this arbitrary 80% funded standard that plans have been operating under. And um, as um, is mentioned in the report, that that is an arbitrary standard. Why not be 90% or 100% funded? So they get comfortable with this 80% level, and then they, they go even lower than that when they, they go to fund these plans. The plans have been managed in a way that makes it comfortable for politicians um, in that we're only going to put in X amount this year so we can... Um, be in that comfort zone. We don't want to have to raise taxes or cut spending or actually confront what would be at least actuarially sound. Um, the amortization and transition cost issue is also mentioned in, in the Manhattan Institute report, and I think that's a great point. There's been this argument made that, well, we can't transition because when we do that, it's going to cost a lot of money. We can't go to that defined contribution plan. And they make this kind of claim that amortization, having to reamortize and and speed up those payments for the for the legacy liabilities is going to be too costly. Um, those aren't new costs. That's just what needs to be done in order to transition. So, and I like the principles of essentially shut these DB plans down, uh, stop stop the hemorrhaging, stop the bleeding, and make these costs predictable, uh, affordable, and current, which is I think the merit of the DC plan. Now. Uh, unfortunately, what's been happening in the states is there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, effort put into talking about pension reform, and indeed there have been pension reforms made, but they've been towards the superficial in-plan reforms. They tend to oversell weak reforms and give themselves a big pat on the back and say, we just saved the system $5 billion over 30 years, you know, um, except they have this huge hole um, that, that remains. They avoid those structural fixes. And then the use of tiers, they create a new tier for a new set of employees, and that's, you know, necessary.
But I think what it's building in is this intergenerational inequity, which was mentioned on the previous panel, that the younger workers will be ha having to contribute more to the pension plan, getting a less generous benefit. And I, I think it's you know, going to um, leave younger workers, as I say, holding the bag a bit. It's not very fair. Um, defined contribution plans have the merit of uh, giving workers some flexibility and some control over their over their um, retirement. And m maybe some workers would like that. And I think that's not being in included in a lot of the conversations about reform. Uh, I went and looked at the uh, National Conference of State Legislatures. They, they keep track of this stuff. We saw that in the previous uh, presentation. Um, so I took this from from their analysis. And this is a, what states have done over the past three years in terms of reforms. They've been mainly in plan reforms. Um, and they come in, in, in different uh, types. One thing they can do is change employee contributions. And they do that by um, basically asking employees to contribute a bit more to the plan. And they may offset that by reducing what the employer contributes. In 2009, and you'll see it basically what's happening in 2009, a few states do it. In 2010, more and more states start to adopt those reforms. 2009, six states increased employee contributions. Um, but only two di did it for current employees. And the big thing to keep in mind here is it tends to be for new hires only. Uh, and that only affects the bill down the road, doesn't really deal with the, the legacy costs. Um, in 2010, more states did this, and uh, five states, uh, I guess, sorry, that got cut off. Um, five states did this for new hires. And in uh, 2011, 17 states increased employee contributions. The other thing they can do is change the average number of years they use to calculate um, the final salary. So they move from the highest three to the highest five um, salary years, or they uh, change the benefit multiplier. And again, you see that progression. First in 2009, five states do this for new hires, then it's 11 states, then it's 17 states. Um, changes, <clears throat> more changes. Uh, reduced COLAs, this is the more controversial reform that states have adopted. Three states did this in 2009. Then we have eight states attempting this. Um, and then in 2011, 10 states. And I'm going to get in later in the presentation how that all ended up with litigation. There are also changes in, in formulas for calculating benefits. This, this is the multiplier. And again, you see that progression from one state to eight states. So yes, there's definitely more states doing these things. But again, they tend to be uh, within the plan, and they tend to be for new hires. Um, other changes to early retirement benefits, and then new plan design. A few states have gone ahead with this, um, and you know, most famously Rhode Island and Utah, um, also Michigan um, with their school uh, plan. And those are the most, um, I say, um, structural reforms in that they created or, or um, moved all employees to a new plan, created a hybrid plan as they did in, in Rhode Island. Um, so other ideas that are not so great <laughs> that, that have... Uh, been coming out and circulating, is extending a federal guarantee to public sector plans. And in particular, there's, there's an idea out there now from um, a former mayor um, of Los Angeles, Richard Reardon, um, who I'll get into the next slide with what the idea is there. And another reform is, you know, sometimes these states go after only some of their plans, but they don't touch maybe the public safety workers because it's difficult and it becomes politically difficult. And then there's the taxpayer bailout option. Um, which you might start to see a little bit of that going on in Detroit. I can't say for sure. They say for now it's only $320 million for spending within the city, but they, they seem to be hinting that this is the start of something. Um, so a federal guarantee, uh, this is from the New York Times, um, August of this year, 
um, Richard Reardon and Tim Rutten's idea that they'd have a basically federally guaranteed debt of pensions. And the way it would work is these plants would remain open. Um, city states would sell bonds to, to pay for the, the pension system, and the federal government would guarantee the repayment. Uh, I think the problem here is that your, your cities are getting, you know, this low-cost, long-term capital, but there's still no incentive for them to get this accounting right and to, to fund these systems properly. And, and um, you know, so you're not getting those structural reforms, but you may be creating a moral hazard problem. Another bad idea that has, I think, been out there for a little while um, were the pension obligation bonds. And this is from Alicia Munell, who does work on this at um, Boston College. And uh, this is the idea of um, using arbitrage to try to fund your pension system. It's worked in a few cases, and one case was Connecticut. Um, and the idea is they, they borrowed at 5.88% uh, interest, and they assumed they would get returns of about 8.5% on their assets, and it worked out. They, they did get high returns, and so they, they had this sort of 3% spread, and they were able to capture the arbitrage of issuing those bonds to fund the system. But in many cases, it has not worked out, and these plans end up in the red. And so they're issuing debt on top of debt. And the most um, states that have done this the most include California and Illinois, two states that are in pretty poor shape. Illinois issued the biggest pension obligation bond of all time. Uh, I believe it was about 10, 10 billion. So this gets it. So those are the, some of the not so great ideas, not so great reforms. Um, then the other thing I'd like to talk about are the legal questions. The big issue is, well, what can be done then to reform pensions? And I think that gets into why we've seen these kind of timid reforms to date, is uh, the laws that surround pension systems, which, which, which vary from state to state. Um, in two states, pensions are considered a, a mere gratuity that can be taken away, and that's Indiana and Texas. Uh, they are considered property in a handful of states. And they have been pension reform has been challenged under the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment in those cases, um, and under, in particular, the um, substantive due process challenge. And in this case, the plaintiff has to show a fundamental right to the con to his pension that's protected by the Constitution. Deprivation of that right has, has to be arbitrary and outrageous. And then um, the 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 state reforming the plan can counter that with, you know, this is a rational reform that's related to a legitimate state interest. We need to do this because we're running out of money. Um, so in these cases, the courts are skeptical of these challenges in property, in property states, and um, they consider vested pensions are really a fundamental right. And they have so far generally found that there's a rational reason for the state to undertake reform. So we find in property states that they can change the retirement age and undertake some of these um, in-plan reforms. The challenges under the takings clause have been unsuccessful to date, and the courts are finding that if there's no explicit contract, you don't have a right to these financial expectations, these investment expectations. Um, most states operate on a contract basis, and this is where it gets more difficult uh, to undertake reforms. The, um, so the contract clause um, basically is that no state shall pass any law impairing obligation of contracts. So the, the, they're left determining how do we determine if a contract actually exists? Uh, how explicit is the language in the states? So this is where the interpretation of these individual statutes starts to matter. Does the contract start on the day that person is hired? Uh, they have a right from that very moment to everything that pension system has, uh, the pension formula promises. Is it on the day of retirement? That is, can we change these, this pension formula up until that person retires? Um, or is it somewhere in between, where they meet some minimum level of service? The courts have to determine, did they 
in, in the language, in the statutory language, did they intend to bind themselves in contract or is it a little more vague? Um, sometimes it's very explicit in language. Sometimes it, the courts have to infer it. And then um, even at that, they have to then determine, um, does the policy change the state is, is considering uh, constitute a substantial impairment of benefits? Are current benefits, uh, generally current benefits are considered protective. Does it also protect future benefits that are not yet earned? So courts have found that um, a decrease in retirement benefits sometimes does constitute substantial impairment of a contract, but there could be an important public purpose, as in, you know, the state can't afford this. Um, this is from Alicia Monell. This is her table. But this shows you the, the spread of states that are have contract, pensions, um, property, gratuity, and how, to date, these things have been decided, whether it, it will have, how the language is being interpreted as protecting um, just past benefits or future benefits. Um, um, so reforms to date lawsuits. Now, COLAs have been challenged in a handful of states and all, in all cases that's been um, litigated. Um, and what we found so far is that in Colorado, they had a pretty famous case. The retirees uh, were, when they retired, they were guaranteed a 3.5% COLA. The court said, well, look, we've changed COLAs in the past. It's fine if the state wants to change that. But that decision was then reversed on appeal. Uh, and they found that they, these people actually had a contractual right to the COLA and that it is reasonable. Um, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court is now going to consider if it's reasonable and necessary to impair the COLA or, or reduce the COLA for that important public purpose. What the courts are also trying to decide is if there's a separate contractual right to, or a separate, um, they try to separate the base pension from the COLA. Are these independent? Are they considered uh, one and the same? And that's where a lot of the, uh, the argumentation is. And then there was a, a kind of interesting case, I think, in Arizona, which is they undertook what, what you might consider like fake pension reform in 2011. Uh, there, in, in statute in Arizona, the contribution has to be split 50-50 between the employer and the employee, and it states that explicitly. In 2011, Arizona said, well, we're going to increase the employee contribution to 53% and reduce the employer to 47%. They, they simply just made the split a little bit different. And the court decided that that was just not right, um, that you did impair the contract there. And it didn't make any difference. It didn't actually change anything about the economic funding of the plan. So it had no important public purpose. Um, it didn't have that important purpose. Um, so now about these estimated impacts, even where these, the next thing I'd like to talk about is in, in, a, in a perfect world, or not a perfect world, but theoretically, if you undertook all of these in-plan reforms, what, what would the actual impact be on these numbers? And first, just as an aside, kind of an outlier, I'm looking at Alabama's system right now. They did something strange. They, well, they lowered employee contributions for new hires um, so they can have you know, more take-home pay. But they're raising their retirement age and they're, they're decreasing their multiplier, so their pension will be less generous. So that's how they tried to negotiate this between younger uh, new hires and, and um, older workers. So if the cost of living adjustment is the most powerful thing mathematically that can be done to um, reduce these liabilities, and for every 1% change in a COLA, that leads to a 10% change in the liability. And Robert Novi Marks and Joshua Rao estimate that if you eliminated COLAs in pension plans, you would reduce liabilities by 20 to 22 to 26%, and that's, that's very large. 
except you'd still have this huge gap remaining. And if you do this on a market valuation basis, they're still going to have a 1.5 trillion to 3.3 trillion funding gap. Powerful effect, but still you have a big hole. What if you raise the retirement age to Social Security for all of these um, public sector workers? The total impact means the collective unfunded liability drops to only 1.5 trillion. So in sum, taxpayers, this is their quote, taxpayers will bear the lion's share of the costs associated with the legacy plans of state defined, pension plan, defined benefit pension plans. And I think what is alarming there is that that does lead to this possibility that we are going to need um, outside the box thinking in terms of how this is going to be paid for. Um, I, I've been saying, well, you know, I think states need to pay for this themselves. They've, you know, run up these, these bills and then not funded these things properly. Um, but, you know, you are hearing more about, well, what if the federal government does have to step in? Uh, and I think that's something that's going to be discussed more in, in the coming years, thinking about a, a sort of scenario. If, if you do all of the things that, and I don't think the slide is here. These are my um, older, I had another slide, but Joshua Rao and Robert Novi Mark show if you take all of these reforms, you know, you, you see the bar graph and it's just like a blip, you know, just <laughs> you still have trillions uh, in terms of, and that's not all due at once, but it's still a, a very large problem. So my principles for reform, I think the first thing that needs to be done is, is truth and accounting. Um, that's Gina Raimondo's expression, but I, I think that, you know, what I'd like to see today is every state and local plan should put it right on the, right on the uh, internet and say, Here's our, here are our pension plans, here's the liability, and here's what we would need to contribute to the plan over the next 30 years on using our accounting assumptions, using uh, Moody's um, uh, rate um, that they're using, and using the risk-free rate. And then we'd at least start a conversation about what kind of resources these states and local governments would need to contribute. Um, then you can get a plan. And then, um, you know, I've been making the case for market valuation. So if you're going to guarantee this as though it's default-free, you should value it as such. And I've spoken about this in the past, but, you know, the, the role of skipping contributions, and as we saw in Detroit, they they did something a little, they did the inverse of that. They didn't skip the contribution. They simply skimmed those excess assets and gave people extra checks from the from the pension plan in the 90s and in the 2000s. Um, the risk-taking and asset investments, seeing that in some plans, Delaware in particular, I, I've looked at recently, where you see they've moved into investing in hedge funds and, and you know, and, and higher risk vehicles over the last um, 10 years. Um, also, I think one principle of pension reform is intergenerational fairness, that they do have to consider what, what they're asking of younger workers to fund these plans that they're keeping open. Um, and I, that gets, again, to that principle of shut these systems down, give younger workers the choice of moving to a defined contribution, um, or potentially, I think the annuity idea that was spoken about earlier was interesting. Um, if for workers who say, look, I don't have that risk tolerance, I really want something um, that's certain. And then, uh, so you get that choice and flexibility for the employee. And the principle has to be shifting the risk away um, from the government slash taxpayer, because ultimately it's the taxpayer who's going to be on the uh, hook for these, uh, for these numbers. Thank you. Just 
Thank you, and um, thank you to everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here to talk to you about public sector pension reform. And in doing so, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about you know, what is pension reform and relate to the second question, can we make it such that it's comprehensive and therefore sustainable? Because uh, I maintain the, the current road that we're on is unsustainable. And, and moreover, uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with an editorial all the way back in 2006 when they were commenting on then the uh, city of San Diego. And they talked about the fundamental pension problem that it's an inherently a political institution. So you can't look at this as if it's some kind of financial crisis, which I suppose it is, but underlying this and the driving forces are that it, we're dealing with a political institution. And that's why reform is so hard. And they went on to say that the current public pension system simply isn't sustainable in the long run. That was true in 2006, and I would say it is, this editorial could be written again today. And my concern is seven years from now, it will be even worse. Uh, moreover, a more recent uh, column in the uh, Wall Street Journal by Roger Ro uh, Lowenstein, um, I think he nailed it uh, quite well, which is why I included some of his comments. He says, pension failures are never about the numbers. They're more about human frailty. People are tempted to promise more than they can deliver. He went on to say, Elected officials knew by the time benefits became due, they would be out of office. Number three, what's needed is to impart a sense of urgency to convince cities and states that pension underfunding has to be dealt with now like any other fiscal shortfall. And then finally, but if you want government to come clean, go after their drug of choice, which is credit. I had only two slides to show you today, these would be the two slides, because this summarizes exactly where we are with regard to public sector pension reform. So the balance of my slides will be talking about how can we reform the system and what opportunities are available. An important point is that there's nothing inherently wrong with a defined benefit plan as an entity or as a vehicle. I mean, it, it delivers pension benefits that's been around for many years. The problem that I have and have observed in so many settings is when you intermix politics and defined benefit plans, you get what I would refer to as a toxic combination. And specifically, I'm talking about forces within the public pension system which are responsible for the following actions that can be carried out singly, in combination, in single years, or repeatedly. Now, what do I mean by that? Well. The first is the tendency to promise and perpetuate retirement benefits that are generally benchmarked only against other public sector pension systems rather than the counterparts in the private sector. It's as if the private sector doesn't exist. So people are saying, well, we're doing okay in uh, Pennsylvania, you know, compared to Illinois or compared to California. So, you know, life goes on and let's be happy. Number two is the, the use of rosy economic assumptions, typically investment returns that are in the range of 75 to 8% a year, which I think is uh, just way too high. I hope they earn that, but mind you, there, there's the risks associated that on investing uh, to get those types of returns that doesn't get a lot of press. Number three is uh, retroactively improving benefits or granting ad hoc benefit improvements. Number four, is redeferring liabilities to avoid either raising taxes 
or reducing funding of preferred line items in the annual fiscal budget. Number five is the failure to make actuarially recommended contribution. And finally, number six is postponing the attainment of a 100% funded ratio, and that means nothing more than you have enough assets on hand to cover your future liabilities to a time well beyond when the employee retires. The fundamental funding premise behind actuarial math is that by the time someone retires, their benefits ought to be paid up, not 10 years after they retire or 20 years after they've deceased. So to talk about pension reform, to me, you have to say, well, what does that mean? And I've anchored that in uh, three fundamental principles. Number one, costs must be affordable. My definition of affordable is 4 to 7 percent of payroll. That's after any required employee contributions. That's based on benchmarking in the private sector. Number two, costs must be predictable. And number three, funding needs to be current. And again, that means funding benefits as they are earned. Uh, it's, it's not a very complicated concept. It's a politically complicated concept, though. And what I've found is in the private, in the public sector, you generally, uh, people are generally agreeable that, you know, we want predictable and affordable, but current, well, we'll let the, uh, the next administration worry about being current. You know, we'll, we'll bring it from 50 to 60 and then hand the ball over to someone else. But uh, talking about getting to 100 uh, percent, you just don't hear about it. So I, I've developed with these three principles in mind a five-point plan, and I thank you to Eileen for referencing it. Um, this is what you need to do to get to a comprehensive approach. Uh, number one, not surprisingly, is adopted a defined contribution plan for the simple reason that it takes political forces out of pensions. There's no unfunded liabilities. They're portable pensions. And moreover, it eliminates long-term taxpayer commitments. Number two, also referenced by Eileen, was let's prohibit pension obligation bonds. Even if you can borrow money at four and you can make seven or eight percent, what usually happens is that money in the plan, well, once those assets start building up, they found a new way to retroactively improve the benefits. The benefits aren't sustained within the plan for the purpose of proper funding. Rather, they create new liabilities. Number three is we need funding reforms um, consistent with accounting norms. And without getting technical here, all this simply means is let's pay for benefits as they're earned, and let's pay off any deficits by the time people retire. If your average age of your workforce is, say, 45, you shouldn't, and you assume they are going to retire at age 60, you shouldn't be using 30-year amortization. You ought to be using 15. That's all the accounting wants you to do. And people are saying, oh, my gosh, we'll never get there. It's too complicated. Um, the use of the market value of assets. Again, not very, uh, very complicated concept, but when you're used to using a higher number to uh, sort of mask costs and defer liabilities, you can see why there's some pushback on that. Because these, these unfunded liabilities will now have to be on the balance sheet of the respective state and local entities. That's a, before, uh, it was a disclosure. Now it has to be on the balance sheet. Number four is modifying unearned benefits. Uh, again, as legally permitted, I know there are certain state laws uh, permitting this, but this is the idea of increasing member contributions, uh, redefining early retirement, redefining normal retirement, 
um, there was a lot of discussion on pension cost of living adjustments, where even if you can find a defined benefit plan in the private sector, I can guarantee you it will not have a COLA for the simple reason that this can add up to 30% of your plan's liability. Uh, why? Because people are living longer and you know, people have uh, concerns about inflation long term. And then there was some discussion about other post-employment benefits, and that's just uh, shorthand for retiree health care plans. And number five is the challenge is to do all this without increasing taxes or doing it through new borrowing. There's the fiscal challenge uh, that's in mind. And so to me, that, that's what comprehensive reform should look like. And I would say I would give any state or municipality partial credit if they can do one or two of those, uh, but they need to be on the road to be doing all five. Now, conversely, uh, I've also come up with a list of five things you should not do, and unfortunately, people very often call this reform. And number one is they float a bond, pension obligation bonds, therefore their plan is better funded. We've talked a little bit about that. Early retirement incentive plans. I'm not a fan of uh, these early out plans unless you can hold your backfill rate, which means your replacement number of employees, to about 40% of those who have taken the offer. And generally, um, I don't see that ratio being achieved. Number three is fresh starting, and, and what that means is taking out a new mortgage, a new 30-year mortgage, or a new 25-year mortgage, and some, some plans even reset this annually, so you've set up almost uh, perpetual amortization. Number four is a new defined benefit plan. They think of a smaller defined benefit plan will be better than a larger defined benefit plan, and mathematically they're right, but politically they're wrong because you haven't eliminated the politics. And finally, number five is uh, a lot of people are talking about cash balance plans, but there's still a defined benefit plan. And uh, very often it gets uh, described in terms that where that's not totally apparent. They get termed hybrid combination plans. Uh, these are defined benefit plans, ladies and gentlemen, and they need to be called as such. And I have the same concern with a cash balance plan than I would a career average plan or any other type of defined benefit plan. Here's a quick slide on what's happening in the private sector. Um, as you see on the, uh, on the green line, defined benefit plans are decreasing, um, and defined contribution plans are increasing, and principally because they could not get their costs to be predictable, affordable, and current uh, in real time. So some observations. Um, number one, uh, States determine their own funding policies. There's no federal mandate, and I'm not suggesting there should be, but they make up their own rules. So when they balance their own state budgets, they are putting in what they have determined according to their own funding statutes. And, and they talk about the act. Let's, we're going to put in the actuarially recommended contribution, which sounds, uh, gee, so good, so professional. And, uh, but generally, what people don't realize is that number is based on a 7.5% return assumption, overstated asset values, and often amortization periods for the unfunded liabilities, that is the deficits, up to 30 years. So if they say that, well, we're putting in the uh, actuarially recommended contribution, uh, you need to go you know, beneath the surface to see what, what that really means. In fact, only 19 states paid their own paid their full ARC in fiscal year 2010. So they define their ARC, and then they fail to even make that standard. And in fact, uh, in some states, including Pennsylvania, 
we have a statutory uh, rule where we have, we're putting in 60% of the ARC, and then we have that in state law. And now that's supposed to go up to 70 and higher, but it, it sort of redefines the term balanced budget when you're putting in 60% of, of an ARC, and the ARC itself could well be challenged as not being appropriate. Uh, and that's the point on number four. There's these statutory underfunding, these, these predetermined limits. They exist in New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and I'm sure in other states too. I just haven't looked at every single state. Um, so the, the point is pension reform headlines predominantly, uh, they talk about the plan design changes, often for new hires, less often about affecting existing employees and retirees. I mean, this is what makes the, the headlines in your state newspapers. But rarely do you see short-term funding strategies adopted other than, well, we have a long-term funding strategy. It'll just kick in about eight or 10 years from now, and 30 years from now, we'll be exactly where we need to be. And I think you can all appreciate the, uh, the political realities of, of a policymaker making such a statement. And very often, when you push back or challenge these reforms, they say, well, you know, again, compared to other states, we're doing quite well. Uh, or it's certainly better than doing nothing. And um, uh, it, it really isn't when you look at the long-term impact. So from some selected state experiences, uh, Michigan put their state employees in a defined contribution pla plan back in 1997. I, I wrote a paper saying when you look through 2010, they've saved almost $4 billion. Um, again, using some simplified assumptions, but it has worked to their benefit. Um, for their school employees, they in 2010 have a, now a reduced defined benefit plus defined contribution plan. Alaska put their school and state employees um, in a defined contribution plan in 2005. Uh, Utah, uh, you've heard a little bit about uh, their changes. Um, they fixed their cost at 10% of payroll, uh, which again to me is higher than the 4 to 7% norm than I would like to see in terms of reform. Um, they also re-amortize their liability, and their whole reform plan is contingent upon a 7.5% assumed rate. Um, in Rhode Island, um, they reduced future benefits. They added a defined contribution plan. Again, they have the 7.5% uh, investment rate challenge in front of them. Their COLAs are now ad hoc, which is going to provide some headwinds as their funded ratio improves because they will be tempted to give ad hoc COLAs uh, uh, going forward. And they have a projected employer cost of 20% of payroll for 20 years. And uh, uh, again, I, I, again, it's better than 30% or 40%, but 20% in any budget will uh, cause major problems, particularly on a sustained basis. And some states uh, have adopted cash balance plans, but I'd be quick to point out that uh, even the private sector is getting out of them. IBM closed their cash balance plan in 2005. So just a couple slides here, just uh, in Rhode Island, just to show you, you know, how much politics gets into this. They had um, an actuarial firm, Chiron, come in and uh, look at uh, sort of a second opinion. They said, well, the chance of you earning 7.5% in the next 20 years is about 40%, so therefore you ought to lower your expectation. And not too surprisingly, about three days later, the largest union said, well, we were concerned about uh, that uh, lowering of the rate. Again, this is a political institution, which goes back to my very first slide in terms of you know, properly funding these plans and uh, the political realities. So in summary, um, when you 
when you close a defined benefit plan, uh, a lot of people talk about transition costs, and this has to be, you have to look at various scenarios. You can't just take one number, and you also need to look at the present value, not the cumulative cost over 20 or 30 years. And also consider what I consider to be the priceless savings from removing politics from pensions. To me, it is generally too late for incremental reform. Um, again, the baseline against doing nothing, because most efforts emphasize plan design and they ignore the funding reforms, which are equally important. And moreover, the pseudo reforms, that is the five don'ts, uh, will never make your plan sustainable. And so how will this play out? I get asked that question uh, a few times here. Um, stage one, I think um, we're, we're in or evolving through. Um, you have a lot of manipulation under funding. We don't talk about 100% funded ratios uh, in real time anymore. It's a long-term goal. Stage two, I think this is where most plans are. You see systemic liquidity challenges, <laughs> that is negative cash flow in these plans projected higher contributions, and it's creating enormous budgetary and tax pressures. And then uh, finally, this will play out in stage three, where I think funding will be fully compromised. The notion of we'll go from pre-funding to virtually pay as you go. And that'll be widespread borrowings, more bankruptcy. I think Detroit is just on the front end of this. And I think this will occur over the next five to 15 years. Um, very quickly on, on federal, um, the point I would make here is that the unsustainable national deficits, the moral hazard, and the principles of federalism should argue against a federal role in state pension reform efforts. Uh, I think they have enough problems uh, here in Washington to, uh, uh, I think the states, uh, I can only see things getting worse with state involvement, so with federal involvement, and I can talk about ERISA and the PBGC, but there are plenty of problems. But just to close, I'll, I'll leave you with a final thought from Thomas Jefferson about 200 years ago. Uh, to my knowledge, was not an actuary, but he had some very good insights. He said that we should all consider ourselves unauthorized to saddle posterity with our debts and morally bound to pay for them ourselves. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. We have a couple of, let me get the, this gentleman here. Hi, yes, uh, Will Freeland. Uh, I guess my first question, and uh, Mr. Dreyfus already sort of alluded to it by speaking about the federal role, but I wonder if you both could directly respond uh, to the safe pension plan and your thoughts on it um, you know, from our earlier presentation. I, I don't know if you were in the room or not, but I assume you're probably both familiar with it on some level. So, Okay. Um. And I've spoken with Preston, so um, I, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I, I don't think group annuities, I mean, they went out in the 50s. Um, that's why companies got into uh, self-funding their own pension systems now. Um, what I would suggest, and, and I've mentioned this to Preston, but I don't have the thought fully uh, developed, is that I would like to see a private sector version of the PBGC where every state would be required to um, basically insure their plan against insolvency rather than going out and buying annuities. Um, again, I'm a little loath to say that should be a federal mandate, but I think having uh, uh, insurance against uh, bankruptcy, um, and, and states would have to pay for that, um, I, think, I think there's something to be said about that. The problem with ERISA, 
uh, and you know, PBGC insures private sector plans. They got the concept right, but they made the government the insurer, which is, it just induces the moral hazard. If the PBGC, and even to this day, I think it ought to be in the private sector, I think that would be a better model to follow. Um, when the SAFE Act came out, I, I thought it, w it seemed like a, a good idea for two reasons. And um, I would much rather prefer that uh, these states move to defined contribution plans. And the only reason I thought it was a, a kind of um, a compromise of sorts is I'd heard a lot from um, people saying, well, look, we don't want to be in these defined contribution plans. We want a guaranteed outcome. Um, and this... Um, the way we had thought about it, my, my co-author and I in a particular paper, was that if you could just separate the um, the government's role in funding these defined benefit plans and give it to an insurance company, this might be a way to go about it. Um, so, and, and the second principle there was it would make it more transparent, the the true costs and, and so, but I, I agree that there, it has, there are some concerns and I, I would not advocate that, you know, to me this was Fine. If you don't want to define contribution plan, if you're really serious about wanting an annuity, well, then you know, fine. Let the government purchase an annuity for you. But I don't want the government managing that annuity. So this would be a second, third best option for those who don't want to define contribution. But you know, I take um, um, the comments that were just made, you know, under under consideration. I think that's you know should be taken into consideration as well. Yes, sir. Wait for the mic, please. My question relates to the truth in accounting category. In none of the presentations that I see any call for disaggregated disclosure of pension uh, data. So what I mean by that, in Maryland, for example, uh, I know Maryland best, if I want to find out how individual employees <laughs> from a particular county, for example, what their pension benefits are, they simply won't disclose that information. So if it comes to salary information, the law is that you can look at, at any individual. It's very hard to get in practice, but if you persist long enough and you use the Public Information Act, you can get salary information. You can't get pension information. This is a serious problem because you can't check for all sorts of moral hazard problems. You know, the last three years of compensation games with sick leave. Sick leave, for example, doesn't come under the category of salary in Maryland. And it's critical to evaluating pension. You can't analyze any of the sick leave games. And again, the last three-year games. Um, we know they're very important. You know, disability, all these things that happen at the end. And so, and this huge pushback. The argument is this is uh, privately, you know, it's protected information. I think when it was 100% funded, they had a good argument that uh, it was a private decision. The public didn't have an interest. But now that we're at, say, 50%, it seems like the public should be able to look at disaggregated pension uh, data. So should this be part of the transparency agenda? And how would you fight back against this immense sense among our public officials that this is private information and should not be publicly disclosed? Oh, I'll take a shot at it first. I mean, um, number one, I, I would go to your actuarial valuation if you haven't done so. Um, there's a good amount of detail. It, it is not individual specific. It seems to me the request you're making on the individual, um, I think that's best pursued in Annapolis. Get the laws changed. Uh, it's a state issue as far as I'm concerned. I would not look for federal legislation or changing accounting principles. Just uh, well, well, as a, 
As they say, elections have consequences. <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to say, I think that's a great point. And as a researcher, I've, I've been frustrated with, with getting data of that kind. But I'd, I'd raise another frustration, which is interesting. In New Jersey, um, apparently local governments don't really know how much they owe on a year-to-year -year basis because the state only delivers them the bill and says, you must put this into the pension system this year. So even internally, they're not great about informing um, you know, their, their um, other employers about what these costs um, involve. So I think, again, I think it's right to go after the state uh, laws and say there needs to be better transparency in reporting for, for various reasons. We have time for one more question, sir. This gentleman, third row. I've been listening carefully to think about what the key uh, problem here is, and I think the SAFE Act seems to be designed as if it's uh, believed that the problem is that the private the states and the counties and so on can't figure out how to fund their their pension plans, which I don't think is a problem at all. I think it's the failure to fund what they've been told they're supposed to do. But my question is really uh, more directed to the comment that there's nothing wrong with a defined benefit plan. It's the, it's the failure to fund it that's the problem. And if the solution, the remedy should always be directed exactly toward the problem. And if the remedy truly is we have to shift everybody over essentially to define contribution plans, is that a statement that we, we don't believe there's any other way to get public bodies to fund what they know they're supposed to be funding because of the political problem? I mean, it's, it's really a, it's, it's, a, it's an admission of total failure. That's right. Uh, my quick answer is I think you've summarized it. and. Uh... I don't know. The problem is political. It's not structural. And um, I don't know of any way to take politics out of pensions because you get a high political rate of return for keeping benefits high and a low political rate of return for properly funding it. I have yet to see someone running for office say, elect me and I will eliminate unfunded liabilities. I just haven't seen that bumper sticker yet, and I don't think I ever will. Well, with that, we come to the end of this conference. Thank you very much for attending, and let's give the speakers a good big hand. <laughs>